Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, everybody. I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance. Welcome to our webinar, What Are You Doing About Regulated Stablecoins? We're asking this question in the wake of the publication of our Future of Finance paper on the topic of stablecoins, entitled Stablecoins, Where They Came From, Where They Are Now, and Where They're Going Next, which you can download from our website. It looks at how stable coins are being regulated and what the consequences of that regulation might be. And it was the global consensus on how stable coins would be regulated and what that meant for the future of money, which drove the discussion when we last visited this topic uh, back in January this year. Since then, some banks used by stablecoin issuers have failed. It's also become more obvious that rising interest rates have made the search for yield in stablecoin reserves rather less risky. And tokenized deposits, above all, have emerged as a conspicuous alternative to stablecoins, and one even more tightly bound to the traditional banking system, with its privileges as well as its obligations, than a regulated stablecoin. So, stablecoins and their alternatives, the future of money, you might say, remain a lively and rapidly changing topic. That said, some issues haven't changed at all. Central banks are still worried about what these new forms of money will do to the funding of banks and their consequent ability to manufacture credit. Regulators continue to believe that digital money can make payments, especially across borders, more efficient. And the question of how all this experimentation will eventually settle down into a new monetary order fit for the digital age is a question still worth asking, if only because it's only the passage of time that will give us a final answer. To help us explore these recent events and the various lines of progress into the future, we're joined by four experts in the field of stablecoins, who I might say are eager to answer your questions uh, as well as mine. Ricardo Correa is Global Head of CBDC and Digital Currencies at R3, where he and his team work with private and public sector organisations on the development of markets for digital currencies and digital assets. Gilbert Verdian is CEO at Quant, which is dedicated to making blockchain protocols and traditional systems interoperable. Keith Baer is a fellow at the Cambridge University's Centre for Alternative Finance, which is part of the Judge Business School, which he joined from IBM. Keith works with fintechs, exchanges and central banks. Keith is also a member of the Bank of England's CBDC Technology Forum. Jeet Singh is EMEA Assurance Blockchain Leader at EY across all industry sectors. He's worked in all parts of the financial services industry too, including regulatory change, but especially in the wealth and asset management areas. As I just mentioned, our, our panelists are here to answer your questions as well as mine, so I encourage everybody watching or listening to submit questions and comments throughout this webinar by using the Q&A functionality at the bottom of the Zoom screen. Uh, I won't save your questions and comments to the end, but I'll answer them or put them to our panelists as we go along. The idea is that you should be an integral part of this discussion right from the outset. But I'd like to begin our discussion by asking about those failed banks I mentioned a moment ago. Stablecoin issuers found it difficult to persuade tier one banks to accept their deposits since they were tainted in some way by association with the uh, unregulated cryptocurrency industry. So they ended up depositing some of their reserves at lower tier institutions, a number of which in the spring of this year fell over. So my question is, is that bad for stablecoins because they have forfeited a degree of trust? Or is it good for stablecoins because the accident has strengthened the case for tighter regulation of stablecoins and indeed regulating them more or less as banks? Keith, could I throw that question at you first? Has the failure of these various banks, Silicon Valley, Signature, 
Silvergate been good or bad for the stablecoin industry? Well, first of all, I think it's you know bad for everybody who was uh, affected by the failure of those banks, and uh, you know we shouldn't lose sight of the fact there were a lot of people and a lot of firms that suffered significantly as a result of those failures. Um, in the case of Silicon Valley Bank, obviously uh, USDC, uh, I Circle, uh, the issuer of the USDC stablecoin, had a significant set of deposits at uh, SVB of the order of three point three billion, and as I think everybody knows, uh, when Silicon Valley Bank failed. Uh, USDC lost its peg as a result, dropping to some 87 cents, I think, at the in the worst uh, position. Um, so obviously, you know, it shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone, uh, bearing in mind that stable coins are based on deposits which are held in a, a number of institutions, or indeed uh, other less liquid deposits in the case of uh, some other issuers that may hold them in, um, you know, different types of government securities or high quality uh, liquid assets, etc., um, so I think the failure of Silicon Valley Bank in particular raised the uh, the question as where the location of these assets are in terms of reserves uh, and the stability of the reserves as a result of uh, where they're being held in that respect. And as you mentioned, uh, stablecoin issuers are frequently having to go to um, smaller banks who are willing to provide crypto services in that respect. Um, I think the case with uh, Signature and Silvergate was a bit more different in the sense that both those banks operated uh, networks. So SEN in the case of Silvergate and Signet in the case of Signature that were obviously uh, significantly used by uh, crypto firms in terms of being able to get in and out of um, crypto into uh, fiat, etc. So that had a, a different kind of effect, I think, as well, because of the services, broader set of services that were provided to the crypto industry at large, as opposed to uh, holding the deposits of a stablecoin. But to get back to your question, I think it does show into sharp relief uh, the dependency that the peg of a stablecoin has is dependent very much on the nature of the reserves, uh, the ability to redeem those reserves, especially at the time of crisis. Uh, and the speed that that, that crisis uh, unfolded gave a significant shock to the system in the case of USDC in particular, and therefore does, um, I think, raise questions and making sure that the risks associated with stablecoins uh, by their very essence uh, are, are well understood and very much that's a, a focus of what we're doing at Cambridge at the moment uh, in terms of building a digital money dashboard which one of the things we're looking at is the composition of reserves uh, the attestations and the audits that take a place to be able to confirm that in order to help better consumer and industry understanding of the nature of the risks uh, they're taking on if and when they're transacting with stablecoins. Now G, the point which Keith has just made about the composition of reserves has become a very familiar issue in, among other places, the, the money market fund industry. But what's what's your view of how this stablecoin industry is going to have to evolve uh, in terms of the the reserves, which the transparency of the reserves, yeah. if you like, what, what the users understand of where the money is actually invested? And I think, Dominic, you make a very interesting link there. And, and if we also look at some of the proposed legislation that's coming out with Mika and what it says about stablecoins and the UK proposed legislation as well and what it says about stablecoins as well as what's also come out from MAS in Singapore on, 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 on what they, they, are, they are proposing as well and some, other, some, of, some of the other global regulators, I think you know, that, that link to me to money market funds is, 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 a, is a pretty straightforward one, right? Money market funds as well nearly broke the bark when they did, they did uh, some of them did in the... Uh, uh, global financial crisis in 2008 as well was exactly for the reason why Keith said because there was uh, 
uh, lack of or, or, or reduced um, um, trust in, in what was underlying those funds, right? And I think that's going to be key here, Dominic, which is transparency on what, what, what's backing the stablecoin. But I would also hope, though, that with the, these stablecoins coming within the gamut of regulation in quite a few global financial jurisdictions now, the issue which you touched on in your introduction, which is, you know, the link of these stablecoins currently to crypto and the challenge they might have at the moment to access banking, I would assume that that would actually would, would, would reduce um, because they are now regulated, they, they would become regulated uh, institutions or regulated uh, uh, products under the uh, proposed regulation in, in quite a few countries. And for me then as well, the natural uh, link to that is the audit and attestation point that Keith brought up, right? So how do we bring more trust to this area? How do we bring bring more attestations and, and, and audit to this area to me is also really key. And just like how in money market funds, you know, you've got the framework there, people know what they're getting into, people know how, you know, what, what the, the process is. Um, you know, hopefully this will also hasten that in, in this space to, to continue to build trust, sir. Now, R Ricardo, one thing we've learned from the history of money market funds is they do uh, tend to fall to a discount, uh, no matter how much regulation you apply. And they, they did it again most recently in the beginning of the pandemic back in 2020. Uh, everybody thought they'd fixed it after the great crisis of 2008, when uh, a number of funds uh, broke the buck, as it's called. Um, what have we... I think two questions for you, Ricardo. One is, uh, and this is a sort of left field question, whether we've learned anything about maintaining pegs from, from, from currency pegs, actually, as opposed to money markets trying to retain their par value. My other question is, if we do make these uh, reserves more transparent, are they going to be enough to go around? We've, we've certainly seen banks scrambling for high quality liquid assets in a number of crises of late. So, um, Maybe that suited central banks who've been um, uh, buying a lot of, of debt lately, but we're going in the opposite direction now and trying to reduce uh, government debt and quantitative easing. Sorry, my, my question's got a bit jumbled, but currency pegs and, uh, and asset transparency, are there enough? Yeah, on currency pegs, certainly, um, I think there's a, there's a lot we can learn uh, from currency pegs, uh, lots of similarities. I mean, first and foremost, you're trying to maintain a stable value uh, relative to either currency or, or the asset itself. But um, there's a bunch of things to consider. So first and foremost, vulnerability to external shocks. Of course, we've seen some of that just recently. We've just talked about some of that. Economic events, market dynamics. Um, and Jit just mentioned uh, kind of the regulation that's coming uh, up in Europe and other countries as well, uh, Australia and the US, so regulatory changes can can certainly impact. Um, and then and then the other issue around issuer intervention. So you know, on the currency side, typically the central bank will intervene uh, to maintain stability. Um, so active intervention uh, using things like you know the tools that they have at their disposal, interest rates. Um, foreign exchange effects and and, and and the like on the stablecoin side so you know managing the underlying asset becomes super important there's various techniques and you know different stablecoins have different approaches to that um, and then you get to confidence and trust so again similarities between currency pegs and stablecoins so you know the confidence and trust of market participants and the stability of the uh, of the peg and the asset 
And so that drives, uh, that drives a lot of the stability and things that we've already talked about, the transparency, the audit, the regulatory compliance of these things, I think is really important. So the user confidence uh, certainly helps to maintain the stability. And then again, coming back to re, uh, the regulatory and the legal risks around these assets. So currency pegs typically have faced regulatory and legal challenges in the past, and these are a lot more mature than what we see on the stablecoin side. They start to blend a little bit, but you know, authorities typically impose um, you know, certain controls, capital controls, restrictions, uh, which could undermine the stability, but could drive stability. So, you know, these uh, these tools are important uh, to, to kind of uh, ensure that we use them um, appropriately, certainly on the money side and, and on the stablecoin side. So regulatory hurdles and legal uh, uncertainties of stablecoins is certainly driving a lot of this instability at the moment. Um, the other two things that I might mention, market liquidity and depth. So, you know, how, how what is uh, kind of what is the, 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 the liquidity or insufficient liquidity or depth could lead to price deviations and instability. Um, lower adoption, uh, limited liquidity obviously will drive the uh, kind of instability as well. And pegs could suffer from liquidity, uh, lack of liquidity and lack of depth. So market stress and capital outflows is typically what we see there. And then, of course, you know, the big thing that we see between money and stablecoins is that the technology of stablecoins is very different, of course. It's a distributed digital context versus uh, money and what we know today. So this introduces a bunch of unique characteristics and challenges on the stablecoin side. You could argue that, you know, blockchains and smart contracts uh, programmability and such can provide additional tools for stability, mechanisms for transparency, as we've seen. So, you know, there's a lot of promise in, in, in the technology. So certainly that's kind of the, that's driving a lot of the momentum around the innovation. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think studying the history of currency pegs can certainly help us understand where we might go with, with stable coins. So, so that's to your question one. I think to question two, which I think was, is there enough kind of assets to go around. Um, I suppose, I mean, that that really depends on the design of the stablecoin, the size of the market that you're looking to penetrate, liquidity and availability, the assets in those markets and asset variety. Um, the other things that you've got to look at is regulatory considerations and then the adoption rates as well. So asset variety is important to consider. Um, if it's a one-to-one -one peg, uh, there's enough USD and EU to go around, I suppose, uh, to, to give us the ready available kind of quantity that we need. But, of, uh, but, but we also have stable coins that are backed by baskets, you know, cryptocurrencies, commodities, and so on. So uh, I'll just wrap up real quick because I've, I've gone on a bit, but I think on the availability of the asset side, certainly the design is important. If it's pegged a lot more liquidity or a lot more availability than we might find on a basket. So the liquidity and depth, the regulatory considerations also really important. Adoption also becomes really important, market adoption. And then, you know, also to be clear that, you know, stable coins and this whole space is still evolving. So, you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of different types of stable coins uh, uh, kind of emerging. So you really do need to look at the design and the fit for purpose of these things. So I'll stop there and pass on to any one of the panelists that might have something to add. Well, I'd like to bring um, Gilbert in at this point. Uh, we've been talking a lot, Gilbert, about uh, what the reserves backing these things are, about their variety, quantity. Uh, and a, a thought has occurred to me, which is that 
we've talked about withdrawal of quantitative easing, returning to more normal monetary conditions. Well, one effect of that is higher interest rates. And one of the things that was driving stablecoin issues down the quality curve was excessively low interest rates. So they were taking more risks in their reserves. Now they don't need to do that. They're sitting there on, you know, with, with, with central bank base rates at four or 5%. I imagine that some of these stable coins like, uh, like Tether and Circle actually becoming rather profitable now without really having to take much, much real risk um, at all. Um, do you think, Gilbert, a specific question for you, do you think a, a, a cash only stable coin is now viable. We we do have one actually in in the Sterling area, which has been been launched. But do you think in the long run those are a viable option? Um, so according to the BIS, that there is room for stable coins in, in the money flower, the famous money flower in, in the paper they did, um, and that also also shows there's room for, for central banked digital currencies in in the money system. Um, with stable coins, they are uh, they're an unusual business model because what you see. Um, is the pegging to to you know one to one to the dollar or the pound or, or, or the euro, but what you don't see is the interest that the issuer keeps. So for for Circle, for example, I mean they're they're keeping the four plus percent interest um, for themselves uh, and and only flowing the the pound or the euro or the or the dollar peg um, between the system. Um, so it is quite profitable, and and as interest rates as we've seen today, they, they went up again in in the UK, for example. Um, it, it is an asset that can continue to be more profitable. But I think those types of business models are, are at risk. And what, what we're seeing is the introduction of central bank money, which is actually tokenized um, central bank deposits, and they don't carry any interest. So it'll be interesting to see how the industry picks the right type of stablecoin for different business models, but also for different types of use cases. Um, and how consumers and business prefer to deal with different ones. But there is room for both within the financial system. Thanks, Gilbert. Now, we've had a, a question from uh, a member of the audience, which is an interesting one. It is, what are your views on the requirement of direct redemption rights directly with the issuer of a stable coin for a bearer instrument like a stable coin compared to a traditional store of value facility, e-money type products such as PayPal, which maintains customer accounts? Now, this either truncated or even non-existent redemption rights uh, for holders of, of stable coins that would go to an exchange and sell it if they want their, their money back has been a quite a long-running issue in stable coins. Jeet, do you have a, a view which you could share with our uh, member of our audience on, on this question, redemption rights in stable coins? I think it's a very, very interesting question, Dominique, to ask because um, we've done we've done some work in this space and the devil is very much in the detail. Uh, and uh, I would actually say that we've had some insolvency uh, practitioners, partners involved uh, and legal people, and it's taken them a little while actually to un, um, undo or to, to, to sort of deconstruct, um, you know, where your rights exist, when your rights exist, how do you actually enforce the rights uh, and, and what access do you actually have to the underlying stable coin um, uh, collateral. So I think it's, it's, uh, they, there's no general one answer fits all, but I, I think it's a very important question and a very interesting question that the, uh, that, that, you know, the attendee, your, your attendee has raised. Uh, uh, the, the other point I would do touch on is on e-money. I think there's an interesting, you know, it's interesting that, that the person um, uh, highlighted this, this, this sort of e-money link as well, um, because, uh, uh, you know, requirements on e-money 
holders, e-money firms, and not saying one firm is, is bad and another one is good in any way, shape or form. But again, there's a lot of variety in the e-money space at the moment. We've had e-money firms also have a pretty tumultuous time in certain situations. And so I think it, it still boils down to the to the to the point, which is, you know, you, you need to do your DD, you need to do your due diligence and you need to understand actually how your money is being held, be it in an e-money firm, be it in a stable coin, and what access and rights do you actually have? And I think a lot of people make assumptions about that, Dominic, but actually they don't realize potentially how exposed or not they might be, sir. Although e-money has not taken off in large part because you have to be 100% cash reserved and it doesn't make much sense for banks or indeed anybody else to, to issue them, particularly at interest rates which prevailed uh, for quite a long time. Um, we've had a, uh, an observation really by Ian Hunt here, which is that are stable coins that throttle supply and demand to maintain stability dead as a result of their exclusion from proposed regulations? If so, why are conventional currencies okay when they throttle supply and demand to achieve stability in just the same way? Now, I didn't even bother to ask you questions about algorithmic stable coins, but it seems to me that they are more or less uh, dead. And, and as Ian says, they, right, they have, for good or ill, been totally excluded from uh, the regulatory uh, measures being taken in, in all jurisdictions and indeed in, in, through the FSB recommendations, they are outside whatever's going to be regulated. But of course, one type of, and, and you may have some, Keith, you may have some views uh, to share with Keith on this comparison between algorithmic stable coins and fiat currency. But um, I throw into the mix as well the fact that we do still have one algorithmic stable coin surviving uh, at quite a substantial scale, which is that which is die backed entirely by cryptocurrencies it survived it's actually been relatively stable it achieves that through uh, over collateralization but th does that tell us anything um of relevance to ian's ian's point keith do you do you have some views on this sure and thanks ian for the question uh, i mean i think the not only is a regulation which has uh, you know been a big uh, impact in terms of algorithmic stable coins but also it's the failure of tether as what well, terror sorry failure of uh, terror itself, which has uh, obviously made people very aware, I think, what the risks are associated with algorithmic stablecoins uh, and, you know, from that example. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I think for sure uh, we can expect them not to have any significant difference, but it's interesting you equate DAI with a, a, an algorithmic stablecoin, because whereas it does use a supply mm -hmm. and demand or a, an arbitrage mechanism in terms of maintaining its stability, uh, it is at least backed by... Um, ether or other kind of crypto or increasingly real world assets as well which uh, uh make a dao uh, the protocol behind dai are uh, getting more and more into real world assets to reduce some of the dependency they have on crypto assets so it is a backed stablecoin, and in that sense it's very different i think to terror which obviously was not backed it was purely managed on a supply and demand basis between the stable coin and its uh, uh sister coin um, and I think the comparison Ian makes between uh, those kind of algorithmic stablecoins and uh, the traditional money system, I mean, the fundamental difference, of course, is in the supply and demand that is managed uh, in the case of central bank money. It's the central bank doing that according to its mandate it has in terms of financial stability and monetary policy, etc. Um, and, uh, you know, being the, uh, the backstop as far as the monetary system for the nation state is concerned. So I think it's a fundamentally different in terms of trust associated with the central bank money uh, because of the nature of the issuer and the basis by which the supply and demand is managed and the rationale for that on behalf of the nation state, as opposed to an algorithmic stablecoin with a, a private entity being responsible for that uh, and all of the questions that, and risks that might just be associated with that aspect. 
Now, I'd like to, to touch briefly on, on the question, on this question of regulation. It's dealt with at enormous length in, in the paper which we've published. I don't want to linger too long on it, but I'd like to, to, to ask some sort of relatively high level questions of you um, about that. Um, one of which is, is the question of standardization of the assets which back asset backed stable coins. You know, has the FSB done enough on that? Um, I'm also wondering more generally whether what is being done here um, through the G20, the G7, the, the FSB and so on, is this really just a sort of stopgap measure or is this a permanent uh, regulatory framework which we can expect to, to persist through time because regulators are concerned that stablecoins could become very big and become a destabilizing influence? What, what do you think is really going on in the minds of of regulators and uh, Ricardo, perhaps you could address that, and maybe Gilbert, you have some thoughts on that as well. But Ricardo first. Yeah, thanks. Uh, am I? I'm not muted. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, I think the FSB has been actively involved in examining uh, the regulatory and supervisory implications of stablecoins. Uh, I think the, the the big challenge is achieving a global standard, uh, you know, approach to, to asset backing stablecoins. So that's the, the, the remaining challenge. And it's up to really the individual jurisdictions to implement some of the guidance there. So addressing the risks um, associated with stablecoins, including those related to the asset quality, uh, certainly is a key focus, um, I believe, uh, the October 19 report, the FSB highlighted the importance of issuing um, uh, or rather ensuring that the assets that, that underline stablecoins are sufficient, they're high quality, you have high liquidity and are stable. Now, how you actually implement that, again, is ultimately up to the individual jurisdiction. So whilst I think they're doing a good job of, you know, making these uh, kind of or driving awareness and uh, trying to drive um, you know, the G20 towards some consensus around the need to do this. I think the big challenge remains, of course, um, you know, what global standards are we using and, and how are these things being implemented jurisdiction by jurisdiction? Just on the standard side, real quick, um, you know, certainly uh, R3 and others have been involved in uh, trying to drive standards around uh, assets, interoperability, uh, credit risks and so on. And these things are super hard. You've got academia driving certain things, you've got practitioners driving certain things, and just bringing it all together is 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 really certainly what I can see the bigger challenge that we have. You know, just defining the the having a definition of what it should look like is 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 uh, I think easier said than done. Um, so yeah, for me, I think the biggest issue is the global standards and the requirements for the quality of the assets remain a big issue. Now, now, Gilbert, when I was working on the on the stablecoins paper, I, I was quite impressed by the degree of convergence there was among regulators in Japan, Singapore, Hong Kong, Europe, North America on uh, on how stablecoins should be regulated. They seem to say we want these things to be issued by banks. We want them to hold this type of thing. And we want you to check that up and have proper governance. And, and so on. they seem to be adhering quite closely to the FSB the 10 famous FSB recommendations. But what do you think a strategy here is? Are, are regulators expecting stablecoins to survive or are they looking to sort of steer it into the banking uh, system where they can be quietly put to death? Um, I think the first thing is uh, harmonization of, of policy and regulation. Um, so, uh, you know, interoperability is, is, is a very key topic um, globally, but it's not just technical interoperability, it's legal interoperability, governance, business interoperability, um, how, do, how do you work across jurisdictions and across different regulations? 
um, we're, we're addressing a lot of those different types of topics and different types of interoperability at, at, at ISO, um, for example, at TC307. Um, I think what regulators prefer is um, having the market come up with a solution and then assessing if it's the right way to do it and then regulating according to what the market needs are. Um, having worked on the government side, that's a preferred approach. It's 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 less um, it's less of a directive. It's it's more of a private public uh, interaction consultation, and then you know recommended uh, regulation. So, in this case, that you know the the regulators have had um, many years to consider this, and I think what the preference is, especially with the risks that crypto and bad banking and bad management has brought to the rest of the system. I think they're acting on, on those risks. And the uh, the impression that you know we're seeing is their approach is to bring in um, regulated stable coins in the form of regulated money, which is going to be issued by the commercial banks and regulated entities. Um, and it just brings it all under the same regulatory regime. So from a risk perspective, they're managing that risk in, in the same way that they're managing uh, different types of, of money or different types of assets. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll come back to you, Gilbert, to ask about tokenized deposits in a minute. Before I do, I'd like to share with you this question from a member of the audience. He writes, given the decentralized nature of blockchains and issuance of stablecoins from any jurisdiction, what are your views on the regulation of fiat-backed stablecoins denominated in any currency, e.g. an Australian dollar-denominated coin based out of the Bahamas compared to one issued onshore from Australia? I.e. you could have two issues of stablecoin in the same currency denomination, yet one could be regulated, the other won't be regulated, but still be available on exchanges. Now, that's a variant of the reality we have now, if you consider that there are non-bank uh, stablecoins out there who are kind of, um, Keith has criticized me in the past for saying that they're in a regulatory limbo, but it is unclear how they're going to be regulated. Will they be regulated as cryptocurrencies or will they be regulated as something else? So I, I think this is, this is a good question because you could continue to have stablecoin issues of the kind the regulators don't particularly want to see happening. Um, what, what, what's your, what are your, what's your comment on that, uh, Gilbert and, and Keith? I'm sure you and Jeet, I'm sure you have points to make on this too. You first, Gilbert. Um, yeah, I think issuance is, um, you know, we saw the reaction from the central banks when a private company called Facebook, uh, later known as Meta, issued, tried to issue um, a, a private stablecoin in the jurisdiction. Um, that didn't end well. Um, and there, there was a, a surprise reaction from the central banks to, to um, not allow that to happen again, just because of sovereignty, risk to the system, um, all, all the regulatory regimes they have to comply to. Um, having other entities issue your denomination in your jurisdiction, I I don't see that working in the future. Um, and the, the reason behind that is, um, you know, for example, in, in the UK, you know, the work being done on a digital pound is going to be issued by the central bank. And that's the consultation the Bank of England has been has been doing. Um, but it will also allow a space for commercial banks to issue their own equivalent tokenized deposit or, or tokenized liability, like a, a bank pound, for example. Um, but having a UK bank issue a dollar in the UK or a UK bank issue uh, a, a dollar from the UK into the US, 
that comes back to the policy and the interoperability across jurisdictions. So I think it needs to be worked through and, and I don't think they have the answers yet. Mm -hmm. Keith, any observations on this question? What happens to, to non-bank stable coins, if you like, freelance stable coins, entrepreneurial stable coins outside the system? Uh, yes, and I guess particularly, you know, comparing a regulated stable coin to an unregulated stable coin because it's in a jurisdiction which uh, mm -hmm. doesn't have regulation, for instance. Uh, so I think, uh, as we all know, a fundamental nature of money is, you know, everything is based on trust. Uh, and I would imagine that the extent of trust is going to be greater in a stable coin, which is regulated by, you know, reputable, reputable agency uh, in terms of understanding that there are standards in terms of redemption or resilience or uh, reserves or audit, whatever it may be, uh, you know, all of that transparency is going to increase trust. And that trust might manifest itself, certainly in terms of uh, the, the velocity and the amount of transactions, number of transactions being undertaken with that stablecoin, as well as its uh, uh, issuance, uh, the circulation, etc. So I think that will have a significant impact. But, you know, since we don't have many regulated stablecoins at the moment, uh, probably not enough data around to understand exactly what the nature of that will be. Right. So in the end, the market, the users will will decide which they trust. Ian Hunt's I, I, I would I would yeah, just sorry, like to quickly Dominic just add, and, and and completely agree with the with the trust point, which I think is number one. Keith said. I think the other couple of quick points I'd make is one is that there's also been a lot of debate in the proposed UK regulatory parameter. If you remember, it actually says wherever you are in the world, as long as you're selling to a UK customer, they want to or they're proposing to include it. That for exactly the reason you just highlighted, Dominic, is, is causing quite a lot of hand-wringing and, and consternation and thought in the industry as well. Because, you know, yes, that Bahamian bank, which you just described, might be trying to sell an Australian stablecoin to somebody in the UK. How would that be regulated? How would that be prevented? If so, what would, you know, how you would, how would you work through that? I think that's still very much also, uh, you know, I think we can all see situations where anybody can access it. Um, but you know, do, how, how do you then capture that will be an interesting challenge as well. And I think to your th third point, which I think you touched on in a throwaway comment, you said, you know, bring in stable coins and then, and then, and then hope that they die. Uh, <laughs> I, I think if we, I, I'm, I'm a firm believer in the future of the financial services rails being sort of blockchain based now to use the analogy. And I think Keith, you used that before that, you know, we're in the 1983 PC stage, let alone, you know, the creation of the internet stage. Um, but, you know, I, I think I, I'm still a firm believer that the future of rails of financial services will be more sort of blockchain -y type rails. In that situation, Dominic, you know, for all the conversation about tokenization, we still need a method to transfer money, be it CBDCs, be it tokenized deposits, be it stable coins. And I would hope that we have a rich ecosystem of such monetary transfer um, instruments to have to choose from and that, you know, they don't just die. Although it's clear from what you've all been saying that actually the regulators have considerable power to decide who lives and who dies. Because if they say this stablecoin is outside the regulatory perimeter, they're asking you as a user to take an awful lot on trust and you may eventually decide that you don't trust it. Now, Ian, Ian Hunt asks the question, if stablecoins are to be useful in digital versus digital transactions, they need to be available on any ledger in any network where people want to use them. How's that going to happen you're nodding furiously jeet uh, being regulated is, is presumably part of the answer to that is there anything else to add 
Well, I was going to say Ricardo touched on that perfectly earlier on when he talked about interoperability and he talked about the need for you know the the the, the ability for people to um, transact or or, or digital to digital uh, entities, if that's the right phrase to use in the future, to actually transact. And I think that is also uh, again sort of future sort of peering in the 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 the, 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 the sort of crystal ball. But to me, you know. For us, if we want to get to that sort of financial infrastructure for the future as well, we need that ability, which Ian's just touched on. I think that's absolutely critical. The challenge we may have is that so far, quite a lot recently uh, of the hacks have actually culminated or been been focused on bridges uh, and things like that. Where so I think there is a a a, a um, you know it's the weakest link by the looks of things at the minute. So how do we fix that, and how do we make it better? Because I'm 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 in agreement with Ian there. Yeah, I just to extend that. I if I could, I think, you know, first of all, Ian makes a damn good point, and we we don't want to build the same silos. You know, not not all currencies are able to be used anywhere, everywhere, right? So we have that issue today. You know, we have some exchanges that do a good job of those um, currencies that are highly liquid, and so on. But this is a big drive for the industry. I think uh, I think uh, Gilbert mentioned, and certainly I've been involved in in the last few years around in the interop of the interop of stablecoins and money more generally across different platforms, different networks. It's not just technology. You know, on one project we spent three months on the tech, and then nine months on the legal, regulatory, and governance interop. So on the technical side, there are some patterns that are emerging which are really exciting. Asset bridges have their faults. We just talked about that. But the asset bridge um, is an interesting model and it has its uses. The other model is the uh, cross atomic swaps that ensure that assets stay within the issued network. They maintain regulatory and compliance regimes, right? They're, they're, you can still control and monitor your asset and so on. And But yet you can still facilitate a, a, a settlement with an asset on another network. It's not really where we want to get to ultimately, but it's a good first step. There are some other initiatives that are going on, uh, certainly that I'm involved in to create kind of a virtual layer above all the platforms. And that's what we talk to, this virtual magic layer that does a whole bunch of magic. Maybe we'll get there. Let's think about HTTP and XML and you know all the layers that kind of have emerged from TCP IP that allowed the internet to be what it is. And so we've got a good kind of template and model to kind of draw from, but we're some way away to, to getting there. So, you know, that's the goal, Ian. We'll get there. We just need a few more years, I think. If I could just add uh, an extra couple of comments as well. I mean, I think the major stable coins do not a bad job in terms of the number of chains they support. So I think Tether on, on something like 14 different blockchains, for example, yeah. USDC is available on many blockchains as well. And the other key point is obviously there's a you know a sharp decline in terms of transaction volume as you go from one chain to the other, and mm -hmm. uh, therefore even with the current environment, I would have thought a very large percentage of transactions chain to chain are going to be covered at least by the stablecoin being able to be supported on a particular blockchain, and the the ones that aren't supported, if there is a demand, I'm sure it's going to be in the issuer's interest to be able to support those as well. But I take the point on bridges and interoperability that Ricardo said as well. Now we're into our sort of last twenty minutes, so I, I, I'm very keen to talk about about tokenized deposits. And the reason I'm keen to talk about them is that these have emerged sort of quietly through the, through the banking system. We we have them issued by J.P. Morgan, National Australia Bank, ANZ, 
uh, SOCGEN and I think some other banks have, have now issued tokenized deposits. And I sense that these are an instrument which uh, the regulators prefer uh, to, to stable coins. That may, that's just a sense rather than um, based on any particular conversations with, with central bankers. But I wonder if um, any of you think that, that the, A, the regulator quite likes tokenized deposits to displace stable coins and secondly whether they are actually capable of doing that are they more stable are they easier to use uh, can they operate through the existing infrastructure they obviously can they settle in central bank money through the usual system i presume so do, what is your view do you think tokenized deposits are eventually going to displace uh stable coins what's what's your um what's your view ricardo Oh, well, I mean, I can go first. I'm sure everyone's got an opinion. I mean, you know, uh, tokenized deposits, tokenized liabilities. Honestly, I've been scratching my head as to kind of the differences of these things at the fundamental level. And there are differences. But, you know, tokenized deposits, at least the definition we have today, you know, is a traditional bank deposit um, or other financial assets in the form of a token that's sitting on some kind of a distributed ledger blockchain. So, so they're not this, I mean, stable coins in our definition uh, provides a broader uh, range of models, but a tokenized deposit is, as it says, it's a deposit, you tokenize it, and now it carries through the traditional banking system, it follows the same regimes and compliance and regulatory and so on. So, you know, can they coexist, perhaps? Tokenized deposits seem to be a much better model that aligns to the current banking system compliance and regulatory, as I mentioned. For example, the Bank of Brazil has a really cool model. They've issued you know, a CBDC at wholesale and tokenized deposits by the commercial banks at the retail end. So kind of a two-tiered model, you know, a hybrid model uh, or two-tiered model. It does differ from the Bank of England's model um, uh, to some degree. Um, but yeah, certainly I, I'm pretty excited about the opportunity of tokenized deposits. I, I'm not, you know, does it uh, mitigate the risk of credit creation? Does it mitigate the risk of, you know, uh, deposits moving away from the commercial banks as folks use CBDCs more and more? You know, those things are still to be kind of worked through. Um, and then, you know, the big question is, you know, tokenized liabilities versus tokenized deposits which one might you use for what? So, you know, there's some, there's some homework to be done there, but there's lots of projects going on so far as I'm concerned, so far as I can see, sorry, around exploring tokenized deposits as an instrument by the commercial banks um, to, to kind of mitigate some of the risks that we've seen in earlier models, um, such as, you know, a direct issuance of a CBDC, which by the way, no one is doing, I believe, other than Uruguay who tried that and failed. Um, so yeah, I'll stop there. Uh, Gilbert, if we go back to your um, the BIS flower, which you mentioned um, a, a while ago, it strikes me that a combination of a CBDC and tokenized deposits feels a lot more like the existing system with a central bank currency available to selected players. And on top of that is built a huge pyramid of, of commercial bank money. Am I right to be thinking that is why central banks and other regulators might favor tokenized deposits over stable coins? That it's more like the world they know and feel comfortable controlling yeah and i think um you know from from our experience we, we've just spent the last year working with the bis and the bank of england um providing the tech for for project rosalind and we learned a lot from that and the main takeaway was why is a tokenized deposit tokenized liability or a cbdc different 
to a normal pounds, to a normal euro, to a normal dollar. And it really comes down to the core function of money today. It's, it's quite binary. It's a push and a pull. Uh, the messaging system behind it, powering money is, is, is very binary. <laughs> There's not, not many things you can do with it. But once you have the, the foundational um, blockchain technology powering money, you can add conditions, logic, you know, programmability to, to do uh, different things with money, which you couldn't do before. And I think that's that's what we're going to see is the the you know the preference to move to a, a smarter form of money with more functions, more features to automate workflows, to process transactions um, based on conditions and logic and all these things to happen and then execute and settle. It's going to be a, a bit of a step change in money as we know it. So from from the the, the model that the BIS put out. There will be a CBDC within the jurisdiction, and linked to that, you'll see um, regulated issuers being able to tokenize uh, deposit or liability on their end, and having that in the system because it's a faster form of money. It's a it's a more feature rich form of money, and it solves a lot of the friction and the pain points that we have today with correspondent banking, with settlement, treasury management, cash um, limits. You know all the friction that we have with with payment systems of today. You 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 kind of evolve money to an, a, a new form, and and you you overcome those barriers and you overcome the friction that we have. Just, oh, just before I let you go on on that point you've just made about correspondent banking, for example, um, are you would it be your view that that tokenized deposits could be a more effective tool than stable coins in payments? And I mean both I mean particularly cross border payments, but also domestic payments. And I raise cross border payments because that's been a focus of uh, the regulation of stable coins where in regulators have been very enthusiastic about stable coins has been that actually might make cross-border payments cheaper faster more transparent and more accessible so they've actually seen a role for them there can tokenized deposits fulfill that role as well um yes if if the flow on both ends is tokenized deposits so you're you're settling uh you're issuing and then you're from an acceptance perspective on on the other end um, if that's redeemed and then the deposits on the other end are cash or, or traditional money. Yeah, definitely. I mean, what, what we're seeing is uh, even, I think it was yesterday, the BIS came out with the unified ledger model where there's a layer to interconnect and interoperate different jurisdictions. Tokenized money or CBDC can flow between this layer and then the settlement and acceptance can happen on both ends. So it is a new form of payment rail. It's a new model that, that we haven't had before. Um, but we need to work on it and, and see where it goes. Now, Jeet, I'd like to get your your views on 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 tokenized deposits. As I said a minute ago, I think central banks like it. You know, it, it stays on the exists inside the existing infrastructure. Uh, they're backed by the usual lender of last resort and deposit insurance um, backups, which which deposits have. Um, but on the other hand, they are going to be issued by banks. Um, and, you know, three banks falling over in March this year wasn't a, a rare event. Banks fall over all the time because of the way that they are, are funded and structured. You know, we have a fractional reserve banking system, which actually is highly leveraged and, and rather dangerous. So could you argue that, in fact, tokenized deposit might actually be less stable than a, than a stable coin? It's, it's a tough one because I think, I think you know, the, the positives are the ones you just touched on, Dominique, as well, which is that, it will have to comply with current deposit regulations, right? So, you know, all the requirements for liquidity management, for credit management, et cetera, Basel III, everything else in terms of regulatory capital requirements and monitoring, it, it fits in. 
fits in really easily, right? You know, and, and it doesn't actually need to tweak that model particularly um, more. Um, but on the flip side, I think you also said, you know, this, this is a little bit like the, the, the establishment sort of keeping it in, 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 in house or, or, or there. I think, I think th this is why I, I made my comment earlier on about a rich ecosystem, Dominic, of payment tools, you know, where I would hope that, that what we have is, is a, uh, a regulatory landscape that actually drives innovation. So we actually do have stable coins um, coexisting with tokenized deposits because, you know, it might be horses for courses and different requirements for different areas. I mean, uh, Gilbert also mentioned smart contracts earlier on, you know, in terms of the more usefulness of money and, and logic. To me, again, there, again, I can see the positives and the, and the cons there, right? Positives because I can imagine so many different financial challenges just disappearing because you can make money smart. Think about, think about the amount of hassle that just happens intercompany in large organizations settling intercompany loans, right? You, 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 you have, if you have smart tokenized deposit uh, type equivalent, you can automate interest payments, you automate tax payments. It's, it's a doddle, right? Makes life so much easier. But on the flip side as well, I do get a bit concerned when we talk about tokenized uh, smart money because you know, at the end of the day as well, uh, to the point made earlier on, we're still early in our thinking here, and I would worry about the security risk then, how that's mitigated, and how do we actually, you know, uh, how do we actually uh, uh, um, um, you know, uh, manage that? Keith, um, do, do you have some something to add on this question of, of, of tokenized deposits, which are, we draw a distinction between deposits as a liability and other types of liability. These are liabilities of, of a bank. Are they going to be superior? To uh, to stable coins resting upon a portfolio of assets which the which the issuer has has chosen, um, you know which is which which the regulators which the regulators more comfortable with? Do you think? Am I right to sense regulators like tokenized deposit deposits despite the slightly different risk they represent? Well, I wouldn't suggest like is the right word to use for it, but I think uh, tokenized bank deposits, as I think uh, Gilbert and Jude have already said you know, essentially are still largely speaking regulated in the sense they're just the existing bank deposits in a digital form and therefore subject to the existing banking regulation, fractional reserves, etc. Uh, that regular bank deposits are. Um, unlike stable coins, which you know largely are unregulated at the moment, as we talked earlier, obviously we expect to see regulation coming in. But I think there's another two key considerations that are quite important as far as tokenized bank deposits are concerned. On the positive, uh, you know, the central banks and BIS in particular, I think, talk about the singleness of money uh, and that by tokenizing bank deposits, we maintain, in theory, uh, that uh, singleness of money because a dollar is a dollar, uh, whether it sits in a JP Morgan uh, bank account or as it sits as a JP Morgan coin on a, on a ledger uh, in a tokenized form uh, because it's just a tokenized representation of what sits on uh, that JP Morgan bank account. As opposed to a stable coin, which, as we've talked about in the past, are not always stable because of the situations that might happen, uh, stress in the market, uh, other issues that might happen, as in the case of Silicon Valley Bank, as we talked about earlier. Uh, and that's a fundamental difference. And that, that obviously affects uh, trust, risk, or the other characteristics. And obviously, that does have a major set of questions as far as regulation are concerned. Uh, so I think the singleness of money is one uh, important characteristic to think about in this context. Uh, the other key point uh, when we're talking about using tokenized bank deposits, for example, international payments, 
Uh, today, they are issued by individual banks, and there isn't uh, easy interoperability. So if you have a JP Morgan coin, as you mentioned before, then it's fine to provide payments, uh, international payments from JP Morgan client to JP Morgan client, uh, but not easily to a Bank of America or a, a Barclays client in that respect. Uh, so at the moment, I think we're at this position, as you suggested, where we have individual banks that are issuing tokenized bank deposits, which are very good for their own network, uh, but don't really work very well uh, in the broader scheme of things for bank-to-bank -bank transfers as they stand today. And I think that's part of the thinking behind what uh, we talked about already uh, in terms of the concept that both the BIS have been formulating, more recently also the IMS, in terms of having a universal ledger. Uh, which uh, takes us on to the regulated liability network, obviously, when you have a universal ledger, both for commercial bank money and central bank money, uh, which would include tokenized bank deposits and therefore provide the backbone to be able to facilitate all of the uh, movement uh, between regulated entities for both uh, tokenized bank deposits and CBDC. Now, that's kind of a long-term vision. Uh, I'm sure it'll take a while to get there. And in the meantime, I think there's a lot of interesting questions in terms of how tokenized bank deposits will evolve given that bank by bank kind of characteristic at the moment uh, versus stable coins that don't suffer from those questions, but do have a load of other questions associated with uh, risk and regulation. Right, we're, in, we're into our last 10 minutes. And I'd, I'd like to spend that on what you've just raised, Keith, the the, the long-term vision. Uh, and you also brought up that singleness of money. I, I, I saw that, that BIS paper, but from everything we've talked about today, we're evolving a system in which we will have uh, stable coins, uh, tokenized deposits, and possibly central bank digital currencies uh, are all um, being used as, as forms of money. And those forms of money might or might not trade at discounts, undermining the, or premiums, undermining the singleness of money, in effect, taking us back to a 19th century world where different banks' currencies traded at different values, if you like. So what, what do we think the, uh, do you think the central banks yet have uh, and, and Gilbert, I'd like you to address this question first, since you've, you've been working with central banks. Do you think they have a very clear strategic vision of where all this is going to end up yet? What they want the, the money system of the future to look like so that it works well for, you know, digital e-commerce on, on a global scale? And what about that singleness of money? Are they concerned about money fragmenting? Um, so the central bank's mission is always monetary policy and, and resilience and stability of the system, and, and that hasn't changed for centuries. So, um, you know, for the Bank of England example, they've gone back to uh, the, the Bank uh, Charter Act, I think it was 1844, I think it was, um, to decide um, what are the requirements for uh, a CBDC, and the same requirements applied back then for banknotes uh, as they do to CBDC for, for business and consumers. Um, so what they're looking at is a, a digital form of cash. So from an acceptance perspective, it's the same as cash. It, it has the same issuing and, and the backing of the central bank, uh, but it has an, a, a digital life. So it's, it's able to do things that cash couldn't do before, which we've covered um, very briefly. But their whole policy behind why they're doing this and why there's a evolution of money it's to increase innovation, um, give more access to central bank money to create competition, uh, new types of products, new types of um, services, and, and, a, and a bigger ecosystem uh, that is really fit for you know, the next generation of, of payments and the next generation of money. So they see money evolving into um, kind of a, an, a, a 
the deputy governor has mentioned this as well, kind of like an app store. So money can, you can create new types of products, new types of um, banking, financial lending, whatever products based on central bank money that you never had before. So their, their view is um, maintaining stability, but increasing innovation and growth um, through better competition. Yes. Oh. Let, 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 let me, I'll come back to you, Ricardo, but Jeet, what, what is the future of money in, in your mind? Is it clear yet? No, I don't think it is to me personally. I think I, I think I'm more I, I think I'm I'm in Gilbert's camp about the, the point about the app store. And I think I think what we're gonna do and what we're gonna use and 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 the and the services that are going to come out still haven't, dare I put it, been thought about yet. I think we're starting to see an inkling of them, Dominic, in some of the DeFi spaces in terms of how some new ideas of how you know financial uh, instruments could evolve, if I could put it that way, right? And and there's some interesting uh, interesting insights coming out from the DeFi space, uh, whether we like them or not, from a regulatory perspective, is a whole different whole different mm -hmm. conversation, right? But there's some interesting innovation going on there, and I think it's I think we're still early on to the point Gilbert made as to how that evolution is going to go. So I think we've got a long way to go, Dominic. Mm -hmm. uh, Ricardo, we we do. Jeet has just referred to to institutional DeFi. Uh, we see some very interesting experiments being conducted in Singapore, in particular, with with JP Morgan and and DVS, with the engagement of of the central bank there. Is that where the future of money is being manufactured? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to tell. I think uh, you know that's uh, that term is you know institutional or regulated DeFi is really interesting to kind of unpack. You know, the last I looked, there were just under 300 different apps within the Ethereum kind of uh, network around uh, uh, DeFi, you know, lending, borrowing, insurance, trading, you know, a whole bunch of different types of, uh, of financial uh, kind of uh, products. So to, to Jeet's point, I think we can, we can certainly look to that space to get kind of some uh, inspiration as to what it might look like. But in terms of in terms of the future of money, coming back to what Gilbert said, I think, you know, stability, ease of use, easy interoperability, the, um, the you know, transparency, regulatory and compliance uh, kind of underpinnings, I think those things won't change. Certainly, they may be even elevated. So we'll see, it'll be more transparent. Maybe, maybe these instruments will be um, kind of more interoperable. Uh, so to speak, but I, you know, I'm I'm particularly excited, and certainly some of the folks that we've been working with, the Bank of Kazakhstan, for example, their drive is to lay a new substrate in order to allow new business models and these new kind of apps just to kind of uh, kind of follow the tone and follow the, the the narrative there to emerge. And we don't know what those might be, but yeah, institutional DeFi seems to be kind of the immediate kind of uh, space for us to draw some inspiration from. Keith. In terms of the future, uh, um, the BIS, I think, has done a super job in terms of laying down their vision in terms of what the future nature of money will be. And anyone who hasn't seen it, I do suggest you uh, read the reports that uh, cover that. Uh, but I think the challenge remains in terms of uh, will that solve the requirements that everybody has? And I'm mindful of uh, CBDC, where, for example, uh, as we know, the UK is coming to the end of the consultation process. But that the question of a uh, USDC, uh, sorry, a uh, CBDC in the US market has been a very thorny issue. You know, we've had the uh, 
it being banned as an idea in Florida, for example, uh, some parts of the uh, political establishment are obviously very much against CBDCs. Uh, so exactly how far that uh, central bank minded view of uh, the universal ledger, for example, being able to have a harmonious relationship between uh, tokenized bank deposits for commercial bank money and CBDC for central bank money, uh, to what extent that will actually be, well, I'm sure it can be practical, but obviously a very strong, long journey to get there. But I think some of the suspicions that will arise from the crypto community and other parts of the broader population will mean that stablecoins uh, and uh, non-institutional DeFi obviously will continue as well in parallel. So I think it's going to be particularly interesting to see what the interplay is going to be between the two. I don't think either one is going to uh, fail in any respect, but I think they'll both be very present and it's going to be really interesting to see how that evolution happens in practice. I, I even noticed that painted across uh, one of the overhead bridges on the M1 this last weekend when I was driving, no CBDCs. Uh, <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> yeah, so that's part of the consultation. I think. Yeah. <laughs> it's good to know that they're worrying about um, uh, CBDCs up in Luton and Bedford, uh, along with the rest of us. Um, I, uh, our time is, is is up, but I'd like to leave our audience with just with a with, with a a simple answer, I suppose, to the question with which we began, you know, what are you doing about uh, regulated stablecoins? Like, what should you be doing about regulated stablecoins? So my question is, um, do stablecoins have uh, an assured future uh, as a form of money? What, what's, what's the view of, of each of you? We'll start with you, Ricardo. Oof. Wow. Uh, honestly, I'd say to you that I, it's too early to tell. Um, you know, regulation certainly is creeping in. We're already starting to see kind of the gamut of stable coins being left out. So the algo side. So, you know, we, it's too early to tell. I I'd be really depressed if there wasn't some form of stable coin that survives long term. Right. So, you know, what we don't want. And I think Andrew Bailey said this at some point. He was like, hey, we all live on Earth together. So we're all susceptible to compliance reg. But the, the job of the regulator is not to stop innovation, but to provide the guardrails to allow it to flourish. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's what I'm hoping for. Um, so yeah, too early to tell. Uh, Jeet, what's your answer to that question? Do stablecoins have a, an assured future as money? I, I hope that they do, Dominic, because I think they, they, they provide some, some, some spread of risk potentially as well through what we touched on earlier on. But to Ricardo's point, you know, I... I'm I'm very much in the camp of Ricardo there. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, uh, Keith, what's your what's your answer to that question? Yeah, very similar view. I think it, it, there are a lot of factors like uh, regulation in particular, and I think the question of the alternatives, how compelling and attractive will the alternatives be, given where CBDC is going, given where tokenized bank deposits are going, and I think it's the combination of those factors will be the answer to the question. And my crystal ball isn't clear enough to answer the question, <laughs> and knowing what those factors will be. Uh, Gilbert, last word from you. You have a very clear vision, I think, of the future of money, its characteristics. Uh, stablecoin is going to be part of it? Um, I think a form of stablecoin will, yes, definitely. And it really is there to solve a, a pain point in the financial system. And maybe it's just for P2P payments. Maybe it's just for low-value payments. Maybe it's for cross-border. We, we don't know yet. But I think the answer, is, the, the other question is, um, who will be issuing that stablecoin? And, and the answer to that is most definitely someone who is regulated in line with the jurisdiction, complies cross-border jurisdictions as well. So from a regulatory perspective, they're accepted uh, to be a, 
you know, a form of money, um, but it also would have to work with traditional dollars and pounds and euros, but as well as CBDCs or commercial bank money as well. And all those forms of money are going to be programmable, right? If they're DLT based, they'll have the benefit of the features of DLT and, and they'll be, yeah, they'll be smart money or programmable money. Yeah. Okay. Uh, with that, I think we must stop. I'd like to thank our panelists, Ricardo Carrera of R3, Gilbert Verdian of Quant, Keith Baer from the Judge Business School in Cambridge, uh, and Jeet Singh from EY. Thank you also to you, the members of the audience, for your questions, your comments. Uh, one final reminder, you can download our paper on the regulation of stable coins. It's on our website uh, and very easy to access on the home page. But with that, it's goodbye from the five of us. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye -bye. Thank you.